Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Courtney Moran. She is founding principal at Earth Law. She's also the chief legislative strategist at Agricultural Hemp Solutions. We're going to talk to her about what's going on in cannabis and the hemp space and really what's happening uh, in the world of hemp and really on the policy side. Talk to a little bit about the history and where things are going. Uh, For those of you that have been part of this program. We've, we've covered hemp in lots of different ways and different facets, obviously a huge part of the cannabis space. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to sort of see where, where we're at, where we're going, and really what the future of hemp is in the U.S. And, and really internationally. So with that, Courtney, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So before we dig into really what's going on today with hemp, give us a little bit of the background. How, I guess, you know, why law, why hemp? Give us the story. Tell us how you got here. Well, how I got into cannabis and hemp is that I was a senior in college and I was given the book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, written by Jack Hare and Chris Conrad. And I just couldn't believe what I was reading. 
You know, I grew up in the D.A.R.E. program and was taught how awful cannabis was. And then I was given this book years later and found out, wait, this this plant that I've been told is evil my whole life can actually grow sustainable products for us and clean up toxins out of our soil. I just, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And so how, I mean, I guess what was the, I mean, what was the journey? I mean, I, I guess, you know, clearly you know, moved by, you know, understanding kind of what's going on in the environment and with hemp, how did it actually play out for you? Like, what was your first kind of entree into the world of hemp and hemp law? And how did things play out? So I read that book when I was a senior in college, and I went to law school. And when I was a second year law student, a 2L, I actually interned for National Normal in Washington, D.C. And I interned for Keith Straup, the founder. So I, I went out to D.C. And I, you know, I learned kind of more in depth what was going on from a policy perspective from the folks that had started the organization as soon as marijuana was scheduled as a controlled substance. And so it really just brought awareness to me about how big of an issue this was, how much of a fight this was going to be, and how much of a fight it already had been, and just knew that this is what I wanted to dedicate my career to. Yeah. And just for folks that maybe not as familiar with kind of the the legal journey we were on in terms of hemp, give us a, a quick overview. Twenty eighteen farm bill, like how like how did this transpire? How did how did this happen? And where does it put us today in terms of the world of hemp? I mean, it's a long journey. You know, hemp was grown for thousands of years. Cannabis was grown for thousands of years, and it was the nineteen thirty seven marijuana tax act that started the federal prohibition on cannabis production or hemp production in the country by levying a one dollar tax on activities dealing with cannabis. You know, that was pulled back slightly during World War II with the Hemp for Victory campaign. Of course, full prohibition was in place. The last commercial crop of hemp was grown in 1957 and processed in 1958 in Wisconsin. Then we get to 1970, Controlled Substances Act is put into place. Marijuana is classified as Schedule One, and it's defined as um, any plant cannabis sativa. And so there were actually a few different circuit court cases in the late 90s and early 2000s that clarified that that definition for marijuana also included hemp. And so that was really what, you know, started a lot of advocates in trying to advocate for legalizing hemp. And there was a lot of initiatives on the state level from, you know, late 90s, early 2000s of states actually just legalizing hemp themselves, but not having any federal framework to operate in. And then it wasn't, it wasn't until the 2014 Farm Bill that we actually got our very first definition for hemp and started the pilot programs. And then, you know, after four years led to the 2018 Farm Bill, which I played a key role in the drafting of that, which I can happy to get into. (laughs) Yeah, let's get into it. I mean, since you were intimately involved, I'd love to hear, you know, just kind of how that process works. I mean, I think from the outside, you know, it... it, for the lay person who doesn't know kind of the the sausage making process of policy and, and legislation, you know, how do these things actually happen? I mean, it, it, we, we see the bills being kind of signed and go into law, but how do they get developed? Who's involved? What are the dynamics around actually getting something like that done? Well, it's a lot of hard work, <laughs> a lot of years and a lot of hard work. So I had actually started developing my relationship with the Oregon delegation back in 2014, well, 2013, 2014, and just continued to develop that relationship through events and advocacy, both in state of Oregon and outside. And when it came to the point when 
we were seeing that the the pilot programs were successful. I teamed up with Senator Wyden's staff and we started working on the Hemp Farming Act that became the Hemp Farming Act of 2018. And that became the language within the 2018 Farm Bill that actually legalized hemp. And not a lot of folks know this, but Senator Wyden had actually introduced four Hemp Farming Acts before the 2018 Hemp Farming Act. That was the fifth time that he had actually introduced legislation to attempt to federally legalize hemp. But the difference was that the Hemp Farming Act of 2018 actually set up a full regulatory framework for hemp legalization and production, whereas the previous iterations of the bill really just removed hemp from the definition of marijuana and would have removed it from the Controlled Substances Act. And there were also a few attempts on the House side as well that, of course, failed and never even got hearings. And so it was, you know, years, decades of advocates advocating for hemp legalization, you know, reaching out to their own legislators. And then fortunately, you know, I already had this incredible relationship with Senator Wyden's team and with him himself, and we were able to work on the initial drafts of the legislation. I took many, many trips out to D.C. over those few years and then start bringing in not only other advocates, but also other senators, Senator Merkley and, of course, Senator McConnell, uh, Senator Rand Paul, Congressman Massey, so many other legislators that were supportive of hemp and just, you know, really making sure that everyone was working together and getting language that was going to make sense. And Senator Wyden had been a champion all these years, but it was really the leadership from Senator Mitch McConnell, who was Senate Majority Leader at the time, of him not only using his political power as Senate Majority Leader, but also his role on the Senate Agriculture Committee in ensuring that the language of the Hemp Farming Act was brought in to the 2018 Farm Bill. And what, what were the key issues? I mean, I, I, generally, I find that, you know, this legislation gets gummed up because, you know, whether it's, you know, policy issues, various parties that have various interests in things, you know, protection of other industries. I mean, I, give us a sense of what was really at stake or what were the issues trying to be negotiated and, and compromised around? Well, so fortunately, we were operating already under the 2014 Farm Bill pilot programs. And so we were seeing multiple states legalizing hemp, developing pilot programs, and really seeing the demand of farmers wanting to engage in cultivation of this crop. And through the different pilot programs, we were able to see what was working, what wasn't working, what were the gaps in the policy. The pilot program authority was just very, very vague authority, set up a pilot program to study the growth, cultivation, or marketing of hemp. It it really didn't have much else to it. And so we had to craft something that was going to set up a full regulatory framework on the federal level, bringing in USDA addressing all of the law enforcement concerns in regards to illegal marijuana production and also, you know, looking at the different nuances. So a few things that we worked really hard on was the definition of hemp itself. You know, we brought in that definition. Number one, we changed the term from industrial hemp to hemp because of the issues that we had seen with the statement of principles from USDA, DEA, and FDA that had initially restricted their interpretation of the 2014 Farm Bill to only grain and fiber production, which was, of course, not what was contemplated. So we we addressed that by changing the term from industrial hemp to hemp. We broadened out the definition to include a lot of the terms that the DEA was trying to use to con- to prohibit cannabinoid production from hemp. Other things that we talked about were... The threshold, you know, 0.3 versus 1%. And 
that's something that we're still advocating for. You know, that's what the yeah. Agricultural Hemp Solutions Crossroads campaign is solely focused on. But, you know, we had majority of offices supportive of 1%. We could not get Senator McConnell's office around to 1%. And so, of course, now we're still living. Why? Like, what was it? Was this uh, philosophical? Was it was it how this industry was going to be structured? Where where did that break down or where where did that limit come into play? Really about marijuana. You know, Senator McConnell is very openly opposed to marijuana legalization. And yeah. you know that rang true years ago and still still rings true. And yeah. so, you know, he he and his staff just were, were not willing to move on the 0.3 threshold that's what we had developed under the pilot programs and, you know, despite the science and historical data that I would, you know, show to them, that conversation was, you know, off the table. So, I mean, it sounds like it sounds more kind of principled in that that taking because there was a need, or you know, his his office had a need to take a strong stance against marijuana. That anything above 0.3 percent would would potentially run and run amok in terms of that stance. I think so. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what was the defining thing that wouldn't let them get to the one percent, but it's really you know the the reefer madness fear that still remains. Yeah. Yeah. So we passed 2018 Farm Bill. So give us a little bit of kind of fill in the gap between then and today. What has what else has kind of transpired or how, how has this industry developed both from uh, kind of a, a legal point of view, you know, federal and state, as well as, you know, just kind of what have we been trying to do or what are the issues on the table today? So many issues are still <laughs> on the table today, Bruce. Uh, I mean, since the 2018 Farm Bill passed, we engaged in rulemaking with USDA right away. You know, I went to the very first public hearing that they had in D.C. on the 2018 Farm Bill. They weren't even covering hemp, but I was sure to, you know, be present there to make sure that they knew that the industry was, you know, strong and that we really care about what policy is set and to make sure we had a presence there. And, you know, a lot of industry groups stepped up and we engaged in rulemaking with USDA. They put out problematic interim final rules that I would say the majority, if not all of the industry, were extremely concerned about. And we had a really great turnout at the two different comment periods. And that resulted in some very solid progress in the final rules that were just published this past January 19th and became effective March 22nd. So we've seen... One is the development of final rules come out of USDA, which is a huge step forward for our our crop. Another thing that we've seen along those lines, though, is that we still have states operating, some under the 2014 Farm Bill and some under the 2018 Farm Bill. And so when we drafted the the language in the 2018 Farm Bill, we created a transition period between the pilot program to the full commercial programs just because we knew we'd have have to have time developing the rules and, and the regulations and also to ensure that states had an opportunity to actually modify their policies for what the 2018 Farm Bill and the future USDA rules were going to require. And when the USDA rules came out and were so problematic, several of us, including myself, you know, reached out to our congressmen and women and let them know this is a serious problem. And the one-year time frame of the extension of the pilot programs is not going to work or this transition period. Yeah. And so I worked very closely with Senator Wyden and Senator Merkley, and they worked really hard to ensure that an extension was granted. And so last September, so in September of 2020, 
really October 1st of 2020, we saw a continuing resolution on the Appropriations Act, and that created an initial extension of the 2014 Farm Bill pilot programs until September 30th of 2021. But, you know, that didn't make sense because we don't want our farmers to transition in regulations mid-production season. Yeah. And yeah. so we were able to continue to work with their offices and in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which was just signed into law on December 27th of 2020, which is the federal omnibus spending bill that provides the funding to all the different agencies, we were able to secure the additional extension to January 1st of 2022. So what that means is that states that want to, you know, have the option to transition into the 2018 Farm Bill Regulatory Authority and these USDA now final rules, which several states did last year in 2020 and are continuing to do now, but a lot of the more advanced and experienced states that have had longer hemp pilot programs, they have opted to remain under that 2014 Farm Bill Authority as long as they could to protect the programs that they built. And yeah. So a lot of states like Oregon, for example, will remain under the 2014 Farm Bill until January of 2022. January. Yeah. yeah. When you say it was problematic, I mean, give us a sense of the things that are you know, most of concern or, or that are or problematic from an industry point of view in terms of what came out in terms of the, the you know, how it was being implemented. Yeah. I mean, there were numerous concerns in the way that the USDA had put out the regulations. And I think part of that is because, you know, and I, I give a little deference to USDA in this is it, because if we look at how the pilot programs developed, the states that started off first, you know, they went out there, they developed programs, we learned things, we modified the programs as we went. And, you know, 2019 was the very first year for USDA to regulate hemp production. And so it was really like it was their first year. They had to go out there, figure out what they could, and then, of course, had to modify it. Now, a lot of states had hoped that USDA would have communicated more with them as they even developed the interim final rules and learned the mistakes that the other states had made all these years. But that took some time. And I think that they did finally learn a lot of those things when they developed the the final rules, but a few of the big problem things that were in the interim final rules was a 15-day harvest window, so mandating that once the sample was taken for the compliance test that farmers only had 15 days to harvest their crop. Mm. Just, you know, completely non-workable. Yeah, yeah, not practical uh, from a... And I mean, also not practical is that they were requiring mandatory testing of every single lot of hemp, and that was determined what, by what variety. What was the definition of lot? Well, a, yeah, what was the definition a, a of contiguous lot? area and by variety. So that would mean, say you had one field and you had five different varieties, that oh, means really? you had five different tests that you had to do. Jeez. And there was no, no variance for, uh, you know, different types of cultivation. And so what we were able to achieve in the final rules was performance-based sampling, which is really critical. And it, it really helps our grain and our fiber producers. And so there are states, for example, Montana, that had developed a category classification system for the different varieties. And depending on what category your variety fell into determined the level of compliance testing that was required. And so category A, for example, only required up to 10% of, of the lots to be tested because these were known varieties that had historically and consistently come in below the 0.3, for example. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Got so it. that's something that we were able to secure in the final rules. They did not allow any sort of remediation. So it was mandatory crop destruction and it was crop destruction by law enforcement or a DEA reverse distributor. And so Jeez. that was problematic. And now they have 
they are allowing remediation and they are allowing alternative destruction methods, you know, traditional on-farm type destruction. They have delayed the requirement for DEA registered testing labs to conduct compliance testing. Now, I'm still hoping that will go away, but that's been problematic as it's been very difficult for many of the labs, especially the cannabis testing labs that have been doing compliance testing Mm -hmm. in states that have both hemp and marijuana programs to actually get that registration. So I'm still hoping that that will go away. But another key piece was a change from the negligence threshold. And so in the interim final rule, there was a requirement that 0.5% was set at a negligence threshold. So if you produced up to 0.5, it was not negligent, but above 0.5 could be considered negligent. Whereas now we were able to get USDA to move that up to 1%. And and that's an important definition because from a legal point of view? Well, so it's it's very important because... One, I want to just clarify because there's a lot of confusion out there. This does not mean that you can legally plant a crop up to 1%. The compliance threshold is still 0.3%. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to work with Congress to change the full federal definition to 1%. But what the negligence threshold means is that if you have three negligent violations of within a five-year period, you are ineligible to produce hemp for the next five years and participate in a program. Yeah, so it it prohibits you from being able to actually participate in the industry. Right, and it can also lead to potential uh, criminal... criminal? Yeah, I was just going to ask, is this criminal exposure? It could be. Have we seen cases of this yet? Beyond that. Um... In regards to production itself, I have not personally seen any cases. I have seen crop destruction over the years, a lot of crop destruction. And so what we're hoping is that, number one, with the remediation provisions, that we should not really see much crop destruction, if any. However, that still is requiring farmers to remediate crops back down to that 0.3. And so we we all know that these genetics are testing above 0.3. They test 0.4, 0.5, you know, up to 0.8. You know, if they're if they're truly hemp, um, other than fiber, I have seen some fiber tests that come above, like just above one percent, even though it's you know truly a fiber variety. Yeah. But you know, we want to protect our farmers. Yeah. Why should they be penalized because of the natural genetics of a crop? You know, they're putting a lot of hard work and time and investment into that into those crops, and then mm-hmm. it's an arbitrary threshold that they're determined if they're compliant or not. It it just doesn't make sense for the longevity of our industry. Yeah. Well, and it's so, so much is. I mean, it's not even the genetics, but it's the the environmental aspects too. I mean, that ends up affecting really what the um, you know what these percentages end up being. So you know, even even if you plant genetics that you know are reasonably confident that they're going to be low, you know, things can happen where they actually test hot. So yeah, I get it. It's we're we're trying we're trying to we're trying to fit a, a natural organic variable product into a box that it doesn't want to fit in that easily. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And I, you know, and I I like to point out that it's not just cannabinoid production. Right, it's primarily cannabinoid production that's testing above. I think majority of the grain varieties do test well below the zero point three, but fiber varieties are also impacted by this, yeah. and so it's important for the industry as a whole. Yeah, and so I guess how how do you see this playing out? I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of curious how how is this going to be impacted by what's happening in the marijuana space, and you know what states are doing, what potentially is on the table for federal, you know, what people hope is on the table for for federal changes. I mean, is are these things you know intricately entwined? Are they really separate? How how is this playing out from a legal point of view? 
So that's yet to be determined. Yeah. You know, so we're still on the hemp side. We're you know we're still facing issues with FDA and getting products to market. We're trying to expand the market opportunities for our industry. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, of course, there's law enforcement concerns about illegal marijuana production and just what is going to happen if and when we see full federal marijuana legalization. And so, you know, we know that Senators Wyden, Booker, and Senate Majority Leader Schumer are working on a 2021 more act. And so I think a lot of us thought that the the discussion draft would have come out maybe two, three months ago, and I know that it's still in the mm-hmm. works. And so exactly what that language is, we don't know. But what you know, I think we could expect is to see a regulatory framework that's not only addressing expungement and small business opportunities and tax like we saw in the 2020-2019 versions, but really setting up a regulatory framework that is going to allow states to develop their programs and have some sort of federal interface similar to what we have on the hemp side with the 2018 Farm Bill. But exactly how that's going to play out, you know, we don't know yet. And exactly how that's going to interplay with hemp, I don't think we know yet either. But what I do think is that hopefully the discussion around THC concentrations won't be so important once we get to that point. And at least we get to that 1% for hemp and really start thinking about end product regulation and what, what products are being made, how processors are being regulated, and where these end products are being sold and who they're being sold to. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to have this bifurcation in the kind of legal structure going forward in terms of, you know, kind of treating marijuana as one bucket of rules and regulations and, you know, enforcement and oversight and policies and then a second one around hemp or, or is this going to become sort of a blended, you know, overall cannabis policy, you know, with various facets and, you know, levels and kind of definitions? I think that depends. You know, I, I think if we can get to true end product regulation, I think that we could have a, system where the cultivation itself has more uniform regulation. But I think the question is, are we going to have to have similar security type measures that they have on the marijuana side right now? Can we move away from that? Are there going to be acreage limitations, things like that? And so whether, whether cannabinoid type production is brought into a similar facet and grain and fiber are moved aside or whether it's still kept separate if it's a non-intoxicant, I think is yet to be seen. And I think the question of you know, that a lot of states are grappling with right now in regards to Delta 8 is going to impact this discussion on a federal level and how we look at the definitions and how we look at cultivation and how we look at processing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Delta 8. It's just been fascinating to see this thing play out. What Give us, for those that don't know, kind of what's going on with Delta 8 versus Delta 9. You Give, give us a quick kind of uh, context. And then where, where are we? Because I know, um, you know, the Delta A is all the rage. <laughs> Everyone's trying to produce Delta A because it's it, it's quote unquote legal or at least it's not restricted. Give give us some context and and fill us in. Yeah, so I mean Delta 9 is the standard that the definition for hemp is based on. Delta 9 is the psychoactive cannabinoid found within cannabis. Um, but of course there are several other deltas um, yeah. that have, you know, potentially intoxicating effects. And what has happened over the last year and a half or so is that, you know, some scientists have figured out how to convert CBD isolate into Delta-8 through an isomerization process. And so Delta-8 has similar intoxicating effects, but 
does not have the same type of effects as Delta 9. And so uh, I will say there are different camps within, you know, both the hemp and the marijuana industry. Some are very pro-Delta 8, some are very against Delta 8. Um, it kind of just depends, you know, where in the spectrum folks lie. But what's happening is that I think partially because of the decline of the CBD market and a lot of farmers have a lot of material left over from the last couple yeah. of production seasons and they, some of them, you know, don't know how to keep their doors open unless they start making something new and Delta eight is all the rage in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks have, you know, transitioned to, you know, allowing their, their biomass or material to be sold for Delta eight production. And so because there was no specific limitation on Delta-8 itself, because our definition is based on Delta-9 right now, and there's different legal opinions about how the DEA interim final rule in regards to implementing the 2018 Farm Bill and the rules that they set up around synthetics and in regards to um, products and whether they are or not Schedule 1 based on their concentrations or THC concentrations is that, you know, a lot of retailers all over the country have just opened up and started selling Delta 8 outright, you yeah. know, claiming that it's legal, whether, you know, it is or not, I think is up for debate. And so now states have been starting to take action. And there are <clears throat> several states that have, uh, you know, passed legislation or issued um, guidance or rules that have specifically banned Delta 8. And there are others that are working on setting up regulatory frameworks to ensure that these products are safe going into the marketplace, but still allowing them. Okay. Got it. And so that's what we're working on in Oregon. <clears throat> We've been working on a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, really key critical issues over this past legislative session, dealing with illegal grows and cartel operations and, you know, also bringing our program into compliance with the 2018 farm bill, but also how we're going to address Delta eight and other intoxicant sales from, from him. You know, I think a lot of us had believed that, or do believe, you know, hemp is a non-intoxicant itself and that, you know, this Delta 8 has definitely created a, a large regulatory hurdle that we're having to overcome. And some states just don't have the appetite for it and others like Oregon that, you know, we have a very robust recreational and adult use program and medical program and we know how to deal with intoxicants. And so we're setting up a regulatory framework right now that will still allow the sales for Delta 8, but have specific concentration uh, testing and labeling requirements on these products. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what else, what else is kind of on your agenda these days? I, I'm always curious with these kind of burgeoning industries where, you know, policy is put in place and then, <laughs> and then there are questions and it goes to court and, you know, the rulings are made. I mean, is there anything that everyone's kind of waiting for to see how either courts rule or policy to get, you know, clarified? What, what are the big uncertainties right now that everyone's kind of waiting to see how things play out? Well, so I think Delta A, this is a big, big yeah. deal. And, you know, what's going to happen if and when DEA puts out a final rule, which may come out soon. There's, of course, that HA versus DEA lawsuit in regards to the interim final rule. And so, you know, we want to see that case move forward. One thing that I don't think too many folks are, to, I mean, of course, the FDA issue. Everybody wants the FDA issue resolved. Yeah. Um, you know, will they act? Who knows? <laughs> They're going to have to sooner or sooner or later. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, Senator Wyden, Senator Merkley and, and now Rand Paul have been really trying to focus on that. And they actually just recently passed, uh, introduced legislation, the hemp access and consumer safety act, really trying to push FDA, um, to develop policy. So we'll see how that legislation moves, but another key piece, and this is something that I've been working on is hemp is animal feed. 
And so we just had a, and by we, I mean Agricultural Hemp Solutions and IND Hemp, um, a, a processing entity that we teamed up with in Montana. And we just passed House Bill 396. And what that does is that sets up and establishes hemp as commercial animal feed for pet specialty pets and horses. And so we're kind of circumventing the federal approval process in regards to animals that do not enter the hum- the human food sure. supply chain yeah. and ensure that we can open up this other market because this is a huge market for our our grain industry folks and yeah. potentially also our fiber folks who want to produce um, silage and things like that. And so We've been able to pass that legislation in Montana. We're currently in rulemaking on that program. I know several other states have seen what we've done in Montana and now are trying to enact uh, similar type legislation, but we're also trying to do the same thing on the federal level. And so what's really great about the way that the Hemp Acts as a Consumer Safety Act was drafted is that if we can open up the door for hemp and substances derived from hemp in regards to food, the definition for food also includes, uh, you know, food for humans and for animals. And so we believe that that language will additionally help open up some access to hemp as animal feed as well. But there's also, um, a lot of folks in the industry that have come together and that we're still trying to find additional vehicles to really provide congressional direction to the FDA, um, FDA CVM to promulgate rules for the authorization for hemp and, and products derived from hemp in commercial feed for animals. And so again, that would be, you know, pets, specialty pets, horses, and just any potentially any other animal that is not intended for human consumption yeah. or to enter the human supply chain. Fascinating. This is this is where this is why I love this industry. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> it just gets so like the, the permutations and the kind of um, you know how how this you know affects you know various industries and and society and culture is um, you know is is interesting and it, it creates you know a lot of um, uh, I guess a lot of work to be done, a lot of things to get figured out. Um, you know, and ultimately businesses need to navigate all this stuff. And so it's I think it's it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, if people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, if you're interested in, you know, political advocacy and just general hemp advocacy, I encourage you to reach out to agriculturalhempsolutions.com. You know, we're leading the Crossroads campaign, which is a campaign to achieve a 1% definition for hemp. We're also the ones working on the animal feed issue. Uh, if you just have, you know, compliance or regulatory questions, uh, you can also reach out to earthlawllc.com and info at earthlawllc. And, you know, I just, I think it's really important, just like you said, I mean, th- this industry is fascinating. We can do so many amazing things with this plant. And, there's been so much focus on cannabinoid production over the last several years. And we found, you know, CBC, CB, CBG, CBN, and there's so many other cannabinoids that we're going to find that provide so much therapeutic benefit. But there's so many other uses when we're looking at grain and food and animal feed and, you know, the endless possibilities with fiber. And I'm, I'm really excited to see a lot more fiber production and fiber infrastructure being developed around our country. But I think the key to all of this is good policy. 
right? Because because good policy is really fundamental to the longevity of en- any industry, especially our hemp industry, because of the historical nuances that we have been working through. And so, you know, I, I really encourage folks to reach out to us. You know, we're we're here to help you to ensure that your business needs are are brought forth to the lawmakers, not only in Washington, but in your states, because we want to help you set good policy so that our industry can thrive long-term. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very important. I'll make sure that all the links are in the show notes and encourage everyone to, um, you know, participate, check them out, get in touch, because uh, as you said, it, it's critical to make sure that, um, uh, you know, we have got the right policies so we can set up a, a sustainable, healthy, long-term, successful industry. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Courtney. I appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure to have you on. All right, you too, Bruce. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.